Because the whole world gone crazy! Just please, go nuts. What in God's holy name are you blathering about? I mean, really, explore the space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's down there somewhere. Let me take another one. Boy, oh boy, it's been a couple weeks now, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been a long time. What the heck have we been doing over there? It's been a long time, time since the Rocky Road. Yeah. We're back. We're back in From black. outer space. From outer space. You With know, the Bee Gees. <laughs> yeah. Whoever does that song. Welcome back to the Beautiful Animals Podcast. <laughs> it's hey. me, Andy Bosch, your host, and my beautiful co-host, Tyler Tyler James Cole. Cole. Yeah. That's my name. That's him. Wow, welcome. Wow. So good to see you. Yeah. So good to look upon this beautiful visage of yours after so much of so much time. <laughs> so much time has passed. And uh yeah, we're also excited to be back. <laughs> you know it's funny, uh side note, I ran a, a Spartan race recently and I discovered during the race that that song that I was just singing, the like I will survive, uh-huh. is totally my power song. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Halfway through the race I just started singing it nice. <laughs> karaoke style. Yeah. It really amped me up, dude. Any backup singers? Uh, no, I was trying to get Jack Reed to jump down on it with me, but he was like, doesn't know the words, I <laughs> guess. But I also was thinking about that song, and I was thinking it'd be a pretty funny song to play at a funeral. Because <laughs> <laughs> they, they didn't. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, I feel like that's a pretty common power song, because it's a pretty powerful song. It's a very powerful song. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, today we're talking about somebody who also didn't survive. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Well, well I mean... It's been a couple hundred years, so uh, yeah. we'd be surprised if anybody from that time period. Well, survived. part uh, this person we're going to talk about is a saint, is sainted by the Catholic Church, oh. and in order to be a saint, you have to be dead. Oh. Also, this person was born in 1412, so uh, she's dead. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. But anyway, the person we're going to talk about today, this this episode, this this series, or I don't know, today and tomorrow and for the next day, we're going to be talking about Joan of Arc. Let them eat cake. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Nailed it. <laughs> Buckle your seatbelts. We're about to dive into a period of French and English history that uh, has a lot of ins and outs and what have you, but is a very interesting period of the Hundred Years' War and was considerably affected by one 16, 17-year-old woman, Joan of Arc, Tyler. Joan d'Arc. Yeah, actually in the French it's Jean d'Arc. Jean d'Arc. It's pretty goth. It is super goth. She's actually kind of, she's super metal. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah, dude. Yeah. yeah. She's like a 16-year-old girl. She starts having visions when she's 13. We're going to yeah. get into all this okay, later. Yeah. But she has these visions when she's 13. She's like, God tells me to kill all the fucking French. <laughs> she cuts off her hair, gets a sword, and is like, time to fucking die, bitches. <laughs> Fuck so, yeah, it's metal as fuck, man. Get ready. It's cool. And then she gets burned to death. So, mm. you know. So who the flip, pardon my language, is Joan of Arc? I'm going to get to that in a minute. (laughs) First, I want to tell you about the world that Joan of Arc was born into because it was a very different France than what we are accustomed to. During this time period, so uh, Joan of Arc was born in 1412. So in the 1410s and the early 1400s, it was the middle of what's called the Hundred Years' War. Oh, how long was that going (sighs) <sighs> like, uh, I don't know, somewhere between 90 and 110 years. Everything was fucking crazy in European history in this time period. All of the borders were changing and a lot of stuff was getting resolved between the Holy Roman Empire and Italy and France and Spain and England. So anyway, what we're going to focus on is the conflict between England and France in the early 1400s 
that Joan of Arc stepped into and made a huge fucking impact on, you know, in her youth. She was only 17 when she showed up, but we'll get there. France in 1412 was at war with England, right? But it was a relatively uh, peaceful time. So So, how the hell was it peaceful? It's a war. So the Hundred Years' War was not just like a hot war for a hundred years. It was a, there were a lot of truces and a lot of ceasefires and a lot of back and forth where there'd be an alliance and then it would be broken or they would just call a truce for winter time so they could all just hide out from the snow and the rain and then go back to war for the spring and summer and then call another truce. So it was kind of a lot of back and forth. And, you know, during, people died easily <laughs> in this yeah. time period. So maybe you would have a king of England who was really aggressive about attacking France and then he would die and the next king wouldn't be that aggressive about it, but he'd only be in power for 10 years. And then the next king would be like, you know what, actually, let's go get France, right? Same thing happened with the French. Different kings, different monarchs, you know, would push back against the English more. Some would ally with the English more. So there's a lot of change going on. The monarch at this period of time in France is a guy named King Charles VI. In his, I think it was in his 20s or in his 30s, he was a a well-beloved king. Everybody liked him. But one day, he's like on patrol. He's like out. Um, with you know a few of his attendants, and he's suddenly struck with a psychotic break. Oh, <laughs> he uh, like literally he yeah. he snaps and goes crazy. He kills five of his guards. Oh, yeah, before they're hard. able to restrain him. Yeah, no, he has like an incredibly violent psychotic attack. He breaks his sword. Yeah, killing his own guards. Oh, what the fuck? Yeah. So what he, happened? He snapped. Oh, yeah, he went crazy, and then he you know c- kind of came out of it, but he never really recovered. Like he was. After that, he was called the Mad King, uh-huh. right? And he, every, the the populace still loved him, and he was still the king, the most Christian king is what was like the title of the king of France, the most Christian king. Yeah. And so he was still beloved, and he was still uh, empowered as the monarch of France, but he couldn't really rule directly because he was he lost his mind. After that, after that incident, there was like a council put together to kind of rule France, and it was headed up by... Uh, his wife, the queen, Queen Isabeau. Yeah, so France has a monarch, then he goes insane, so they're like, okay, we gotta we gotta get some people together to run <laughs> France while this guy is... So Queen Isabeau, King Charles's wife, and his brother, Louis I, who's the Duke of Orleans, are basically at the head of the council that is um, running France at this time period. What ends up happening, because you don't have like a single central person in power is people are jockeying for position and trying to be trying to gain power and like putting together these different, you know, alliances with different folks and so there's this whole there ends up being a lot of conflict around who's actually going to run France because there is a king but he can't run the country. So there's Queen Isabeau and uh Louis the 1st who is the Duke of Orleans and then there's this guy named John the Fearless who's the Duke of Burgundy. Is he pretty hardcore? John the Fearless is hella hardcore. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> How much fear did he have? None. <laughs> oh, not even one? Yeah, no. In French, uh, Fearless is sans peur. So he's Jean sans peur. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's dope. Dope. And it's kind of interesting. Like, Burgundy is this region of France. It's kind of, it's a couple of reason, regions of France, sort of in the north and the east of France. But Burgundy, the region, also extends into the Holy Roman Empire and kind of into what is the Holy Roman Empire at that time and into Italy. So he's the Duke of France and he's related to, I think he's the cousin of the king. So he's a prince of France, but he also is like the Count of Burgundy, which means 
he is also part of the nobility and royalty in the Holy Roman Empire and in Italy. So he's almost got this, like, so- he's almost like his own sovereign in a lot of ways, but he's also like a prince and a noble person in the French hierarchy. This comes into play because he's going to end up being one side of this conflict that ends up being a civil, basically a civil war in France, okay. right? So there's him on one side, John the Fearless, and then there's uh, Queen Isabeau and Louis, who's the Duke of Orleans, on the other side. The Duke of Orleans ends up kind of shouldering his way into a position of power over John the Fearless, over the Duke of Burgundy, mm-hmm. right? So the Duke of Orleans is now kind of has one up on the Duke of Burgundy, John the Fearless, and he does not like that, right? Well, he's fearless. He's going to go stab a bitch, right? You guessed it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, like that, literally, John the Fearless has Louis, the Duke of Orleans, assassinated in the streets of Paris, in the capital. And he's not cagey about it. He says that he did it, and he's like, fuck you guys, I did this. <laughs> like, uh, I'm in charge now, basically. He was a hardcore dude, John the Fearless. He had like He was like around in his 40s at this time. And he already had like a pretty storied and uh, successful military history. So yeah. he was like a hardcore veteran, wasn't fucking around, and had the Duke of Orleans killed in the streets of Paris to make a point that no one could push him around. He's like, I'm in charge of this shit. I mean, here's the thing, too. People didn't like Louis, the Duke of Orleans. He was, uh, they didn't like him at all. He was like a womanizer and like a gambler. And He's like, fearless. No, the other guy. Oh, the other guy. Yeah, the guy that he killed. Fearful. So he, that's what part of why he could get away with killing that guy is that the populace didn't like him yeah. because he was kind of a tyrant. Mm-hmm. So when he killed him, he's like, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fuck that guy, right? But the Duke of Orleans, who was killed, his son, the new Duke of Orleans, was obviously not happy about that, mm-hmm. right? So he, he got together with another guy, the Count of uh, Armagnac, and started to put together kind of a faction that would oppose John the Fearless. That became known as the Armagnacs, because the Count of Armagnac, which is a region in France, was part of this alliance against John the Fearless, who's the Duke of Burgundy. That's how the Armagnacs and the Burgundians get set up, and those are the two factions that are going to be most at play in this conflict, and then the English once they show up. So there's three people going on. This civil war, essentially, between the Armagnacs and Burgundians begins because of this attack on the Duke of Orléans. And at first, John the Fearless, the Duke of Burgundy, has control over Paris. You know, pretty much has the upper hand over the Armagnacs. But then, while they're fighting and engaging in this civil war, the king, the new king in England, King Henry V, decides it's a great time to invade. Oh, yeah. Right? Because there's a civil war going on. He's Sounds like, right. Oh, perfect. King Henry V is a total badass, oh. right? At this point in time, I think he's in he's in his early 20s when he first invades here, but he's already seen war. He has a badass scar next to his eye where he got hit with an arrow, like, yeah. right in his face. I think part of it's still in there. And he's just, like, an he's an epic soldier. People call him God's own soldier. Yeah, and he's the king of England. So he's And he's a badass dude. So he sees this civil war playing out in France, and he decides it's a great time to invade. So he lands sails a bunch of ships over and lands in Normandy, which is the northern part of France, Yeah, and just starts wrecking shop and taking town after town after town. Now, he was sure that the rift between the Armagnacs and the Burgundians was significant enough that they wouldn't be able to team up and come at him, 
but he was wrong. No. <laughs> they, yeah, basically, I mean, they get together, they declare a truce, like, okay, let's not fight each other. We got to get the English out of here. And they both agree to send armies north to try and push out the English. And this is going to culminate in a very famous battle called the the Battle of Azincourt. In French, it's Azincourt. It looks like Agincourt. I'm not 100% sure how to pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> but the Battle of Azincourt is a super famous battle in English history and in French history. And we're going to talk about it a little bit here. All right, all right. And that's in 1415. So uh, Joan of Arc, which we'll get back to later, she was born in 1412. So this she's a little baby. Yeah. But this is the this is the context. This is the scene, yeah, the, the world that she's born into. A decade or so preceding her her joining the party. Mm-hmm. Okay, so King Henry crosses the English Channel, and he is taking town after town in northern France. One thing to remember about this time period is there's not the armies are not large, yeah. right? And there aren't a lot of standing armies. Mostly, he's just rolling up to a town and being like, "I'm in charge now," and then going on to the next one. Yeah. <laughs> and he's got. I mean, there's no guns or anything. Just. He's on a there horse are guns. Oh, there are. Well, they're cannons. Okay. Yeah, and artillery. Um, later on, actually, we'll talk more about artillery. But there, are, there are cannons. There are uh, rudimentary guns. But most yeah. fighting is done with longbows, with swords, yeah, spears. Yeah, he's just axes. swinging the sword around on top yeah. of his horse and yeah, exactly. Saying, "I'm in charge here." Yeah. So he rolls through. So these it's towns. the king himself. The king himself rolling yeah. through town. He is rolling through yeah. town. He's got with him uh, five, six thousand troops. Right. Yeah. And he's taking, you know, town after town in the north of France and Normandy. So the the French are like, okay, we're going to have a truce, and we're going to send armies north to fight them. And they end up meeting in this famous battle called the Battle of Agincourt uh, on October 25th, 1415. Now, in this battle, the English are outnumbered considerably. Henry has with him about 5,000 archers, longbowmen, and the English longbowmen are, like, famously good. Of course. 5,000 English longbowmen, and 1,500 men-at-arms, which are, like, guys in armor yeah, uh, swords. with swords. So that's his force. You know, roughly, you know, between six and 8,000. You know, numbers aren't specific. Yeah, but yeah. somewhere between six and 8,000. That was before they could count that high. Yeah. And then the French show up with between fourteen and 15,000 yeah. men. So, like, a lot more. They're, How, yeah, they're at home, so they probably... Yeah. How, kind of however... Advantage. All of the French that show up to do battle are the Armagnacs. None of the Burgundians show up. Oh, yeah. Even though they made a truce and they're like, yeah, we're going to help you guys push out the English, they're not there. They don't field an army for this battle. The Armagnacs, of course, are like, well, we've got this. We've got twice as many people. It's going to be fine. Unfortunately <laughs> for them, it's not. Mm. King Henry himself fought at the the front in the vanguard, in the middle line, in the middle of his formation. And then he uh, arrayed his archers out all on the front lines, and then some on the edges, like on the left and right flanks. One thing that the the English archers did at this time period is they would set wooden stakes in front of them Uh in the ground, and this was in order to prevent a cavalry charge from just, like, wrecking an archer corps. Oh, yeah. Right? I guess the French didn't know this because the first (laughs) thing they do is send a, like, massive cavalry charge right at the front lines, and they're just crushed not only is there a ridiculous like storm of arrows coming down yeah. like crazy amount of arrows just like a rain of arrows killing people left and right but the cavalry as soon as they get to the front and it's a, it's about a thousand yards that they have to cross between the lines after they get a raid between these two villages they have to cross this thousand yards while getting pelted with arrows and then as soon as they get to the front lines it's like there are all these stakes set in the ground at angles so the yeah. horses just run into them and impale themselves. Oh, and, what the fuck? Yeah, and the cavalry like oh the whole cavalry charge is just 
is crushed immediately. So then the French captains send the, the men at arms, their guys in armor with swords. They send another wave of them, and they're just trying to basically just, like, destroy them with numbers. One thing that happened is, like, a few days prior it rained, and this is all, like, farmland. Mm-hmm. So it was extremely muddy. Yeah, it's all slippery. Yeah. And King Henry knew this, I mean, at least according to the movie... Uh, <laughs> the King that I watched not that long ago that yep. stars Timothy Shalom, Shamalim and Ding Dong. Shamalim and Ding Dong. Yeah, which is a really good movie, actually. Yeah, you should watch it. All right. It depicts this battle, and one of the things in that movie that they say is, like, he knows, like, the field's going to be muddy. Their guys are we- wearing heavier plate. We're going to we- wear less heavy armor, mm-hmm. so we are more mobile. And so they end up, I mean, whatever they do, they destroy the French. The French suffer Terrible losses. Yeah. 6,000, 7,000 men killed, yeah. which is a lot. That's like, because normally your casualties are like maybe 10% and yeah. you lose the battle. In this case, 50%, 60% of the French were killed in the field. The commanders of the Armagnac army here are all old story generals and like dukes and lords from previous war campaigns that had gone over the previous 20 or 30 years so like all these guys that died were like the famous generals from the past <laughs> like oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah all the experienced people all the experienced and famous generals of the armagnac army are like killed in this battle it's a devastating crippling blow to the french it is a ridiculous victory for the english not only were they outnumbered but they fucked them up and like really ruined them Afterward, in the aftermath, the Armagnacs and the French are basically, like, really upset that the Burgundians didn't show up <laughs> yeah. because they suffered such a, like, crushing defeat. Well, is it, it might have just been that they were, they're not local to this, where this battle took place, right? Um, no, it's Wouldn't not it like that, dude. Yeah. They're just, the, the, you'll see, this guy, John the Fearless, <clears throat> the Duke of Burgundy, is kind of a slimy pig, dude. Yeah. Like, he, he's playing you know he's in bed with everybody playing (laughs) both sides against the middle he's like he'll make an agreement and then renege on it and then he'll say like oh sorry we were just running late you know what i mean like i mean he what he is is he's a he's a very intelligent tactician he's a very intelligent political player and he knew that he could crush the strength of his you know civil war foe by not showing up and letting henry wreck shop and he probably didn't know that the english were going to win but he figured like well fuck it i don't want to like, yeah, they can like, they can handle good. it. Let yeah. them die while yeah. they're at it. You know. Anyway, so he was not uh, not at Agincourt at that battle, and the Armagnacs are very upset about it. So just to so King Charles, of course, the crazy guy, of course, was not leading the battle for the Armagnacs because he's insane. Yes, it was more on the um, his council, his council, who was led well, not led, but. Uh, Isabeau is the queen, and then this guy, the new Duke of Orleans, the son of the guy that was assassinated. Yeah. And then his homies are, like, the ones in charge of the Armagnacs right now. The heir to the throne in France is called the Dauphin, which means dolphin. I would have guessed that. Basically, it's just the term that they call the oldest son of the king of France. is known oh. as the Dauphin. Uh, it actually comes from, like, um, there was a region in, in France called, like... Rue the Dauphin or something like that. Yeah. And it was traditional for the eldest son of the King of France to be given that region to like rule over. So it would be, you know, called the Duke of Dauphin. Just like the Prince of Wales for England. Oh, yeah. It's like the heir to the throne or whatever. But it just kind of became just got shortened to Dauphin. So people just call the eldest son of the King of France, who's the heir to the throne, the mm-hmm. Dauphin. The Dolphin. 
The dolphin. Yes, exactly. I bring this up because at this point in time, the dolphin, who is the heir to the throne, is married to the daughter of John the Fearless. Mm-hmm. So he's got he's got sort of a claim to the lineage that way. So he decides now that the Armagnacs have had this formidable blow struck against them by the English, he's like, okay, t- this is a good time for me to roll into Paris and take control of the French government. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's like, my son is the heir to the throne, or my son-in-law is the heir to the throne, <coughs> so I'm going to roll into Paris and I'm going to, you know, take yeah. charge, yeah. basically. He's going to start running the place. Yeah. So in November of that year, like, this is, uh, again, in... Uh, 1415. 1415. John the Fearless, the Duke of Burgundy, advances on Paris and puts himself in charge. However, shortly thereafter, the the Dauphin, who is the guy, who his son-in-law, yeah, his yeah. sort of claim to power, dies. Oh, what the fuck? Yeah, he just, I don't know, they get sick and Did they die. Did he drown? No, he just got sick and died. That happened. Was this during the time of the Black Plague? It's around. There's a lot of bad sicknesses around. People die all the time. Yeah. They're just people dying a lot. <laughs> So <laughs> that Dauphin dies. So there is another Dauphin who is, uh, you know, the next son. There's the eldest son, and then there's... The, he now dies. he's the oldest. Now he's the eldest son, right? That results in the Duke of Armagnac, who is the, the other guy on the council, uh, putting him in more of a, a position of power, and he's able to kick John out of Paris yeah. and sort of take the reins for a while. And the civil war between the Armagnacs and the Burgundians really heats up at this point, right? And they're having skirmishes and taking different towns back and forth from each other. Meanwhile, Henry, King Henry V... The British are coming. Yeah, is just taking, like, all of northern France. All of Normandy, all of, you know, everything, basically everything north of the Loire Valley, which is um, pretty far north in France... He's just taking town after town, and, and he's able to, you know, rest, and basically he's not being, no one's really facing up against him. Yeah, because they're busy. Yeah. In July of 1416, so this is the next, you know, there's the next spring and then the next sort of summer, they've been, the Armagnacs and the Burgundians have been fighting, and uh, John the Fearless decide he reaches out to Henry V and makes an agreement that, you know, the English aren't going to take his parts of northern France. Yeah. So he makes a sort of a mini treaty with him. They only make treaty about those northern areas, like the rest of France. They don't make any agreement about. They don't say they're not going to fight over it. They make an agreement that Henry won't roll into Artois and Flanders, which are uh, and Luxembourg, which are the northern areas of John the Fearless's little personal kingdom of Burgundy. So he's he's able to no longer worry about the English invading that area, and he can focus his full attention on the areas in the south mm-hmm. that are contested between him and the Armagnacs. Burgonia and the the area of Burgundy that John the Fearless is in charge of is in sort of central um, eastern France. And then the Armagnacs are mostly in charge of like southern France. And now King Henry has most of northern France, Mm. right? So this civil war is going on. No one's really fighting the English. They're just trying to take them what they want. But anyway, the new Dauphin, after the one that died before, also dies. (laughs) Yeah. And he had been... He was... He was related to the Duke of Burgundy as well. He was in in less of a position of power, or um, he was less closely related to the Duke of Burgundy, but he was like a nephew yeah. to John. So he still had a sort of claim on the throne, and there was still sort of a legitimate reason that he could be having this civil war, yeah. right? He was still claiming like, oh, well, that guy's my nephew by marriage. He's the guy next in line, so I should be in charge because... 
I'm his uncle. Yeah. Which makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah, my uncle should be in charge too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, he dies also. And then the new Dauphin, right, who's the third son of the king, Charles, the Mad yeah, King, yeah. he is betrothed to a Sicilian, or the heir to Sicily, who, and the, the Sicilian monarch is a personal enemy of John of Burgundy. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the sure. new Dauphin is absolutely not on the side of the Burgundians. He is far on the side of the Armagnacs, which cements the Armagnac position in their legitimate claim to controlling France considerably undermines John the Fearless's claim to even be going about this civil war. So he's got to make up some new reasons. He does. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, John the Fearless isn't the type of dude to, like, back down just because it doesn't make sense to be going to war. So instead, he says, fuck it. And he (laughs) he writes a letter and has it distributed to, like, as much of France as he can possibly send out. And he declares that the Armagnacs and their whole coalition are all traitors— and that if he become if he's able to take power over Paris and over France, he's going to abolish all taxes. All right. Well, then... so he sends this letter to all the towns, <laughs> and all the people are like, "Oh, okay. Oh, <laughs> sounds good." Um, then what's the point of owning all that land if they're not, not if he's not getting taxes from them? I mean, I'm sure he's going to fucking go back well, on that. Of shit. course, yeah. yeah. Politicians are yeah, always the same. One kind of interesting thing about these two factions, as well as like uh, the Burgundians. Their their lands that he's already in charge of are big sheep lands. Yeah. So they're big wool-producing areas. Yeah, he's got to get that wool tax. And they sell most of that wool to the English. Oh. Yeah. Whereas the Armagnacs, those are all more agrarian areas, like non, not with wool. It's mm. all like growing food. And they're just processing all of that internally. Yeah. So there's kind of a, a economic element of this whole thing, too. That's what I do with food, too. I process it internally. It's better than processing it externally. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so at this point with the new Dauphin, and his name is Charles the Seventh, right? He's firmly in the Armagnac camp. John the Fearless has declared all Armagnacs to be traitors and said he would abolish taxes, and the Armagnacs don't like John because he killed the Duke of Orleans yeah. in front of everybody, and they're like, fuck you. I remember that. Yeah. After this declaration that all the Armagnacs are traitors, John the Fearless, he's able to sort of foment like a mini rebellion in Paris and then march into Paris to quell the dissent. Uh, That's like the pretext for him bringing an army to Paris. Right. And so then he's able to take control. um, He he ends up he's able to take control of Paris. Basically, when he gets there, Queen Isabeau is like, "Okay, you're in charge now. And people really end up hating her for this. Because she's not fearless. No, John the Fearless is fearless. Because he's in Paris and because he is, like, in charge of the queen, he now is saying that the Burgundians are the ones who support the queen and she should really be in charge, not the Dauphin, the eldest son of the king. So he sort of lost his legitimate claim to be carrying out the Civil War. Yeah, yeah. So he goes and basically kidnaps the queen. doesn't kidnap the queen, but, like, asserts his dominance yeah. over the queen and then says, hey, I should be in charge of the country. Uh, the queen's in charge of the country. I'm just ruling on her behalf. Yeah. Right? So he, no matter what happens, this guy just keeps trying to, keeps coming up with another way to legitimize his, yeah. like, rule over France. You know how people do. Yeah. Yeah. So the Burgundians are claiming authority to rule through the queen. The Armagnacs are, are claiming authority to rule through Charles the Seventh, who is the Dauphin. And meanwhile, Henry V is just taking all of northern <laughs> France because nobody is there to oppose him. They really did send their their army, like the real army that they had, to fight him at Azincourt, and 
it failed. So they don't even like all these skirmishes yeah. are on a much smaller scale than than the army that they fielded there. And it's a really, really, really bad time for the common people of France because there's war and there's fighting all over the place. Yeah. Right. There's like a a lot of this stuff. I you know I forgot to name our source. Most of this comes from Helen Castor's book Joan of Arc, which is taken from a lot of primary sources. There are a lot of people writing journals. Oh, yeah. At that time period That's in Paris, cool. that are still that we still have, and all of the when we get to it, the trials of Joan of Arc, those were all really fastidiously documented. Oh yeah, yeah. So we have primary source documentation for everything that's going on in nice. France at this time period. It's great. The journal writer in Paris that is cited for a lot of this information talks about hearing this story from these merchants who were trying to escape Normandy and trying to get away from the English. And they were captured by the English and made to like give up most of their money, and then they got and then they were let go, and then they were captured by the Burgundians, <laughs> and yeah. then they were captured by the Armagnacs. <laughs> I'm just getting jerked around. Yeah, and and each one of them treated them worse than the guy before. Yeah. By the time they got to Paris, they're like, you know what, the fucking English treated us better than the other <laughs> two than our own countrymen. Yeah. So it's just it's a really bad time for local people. I mean, you gotta you gotta understand that like these armies when they're in the field, they don't always have great supply lines so they're typically levying taxes or levying food and supplies from the local towns that they're going through and not all of these soldiers of course are well behaved so people are getting treated really terribly and you know it's just it's not a good time for the people of paris this war there are three different people engaged three different you know uh factions engaged in this war and the, the people that are really losing are the people of the countryside so it's it's a really bad time (laughs) (laughs) after john of burgundy takes Paris and sort of has control over the country through Queen Isabeau. He Charles the Seventh, the son of the Mad King, right, mm-hmm. is kind of spirited out of Paris. He manages to escape and sets up his own court in in Borgia. It's about a couple hundred miles south of Paris, and they set up their own court and say, "Hey, we're governing France from here." Yeah. Right? This is the Armagnac court. It's a new capital. It's a new capital, exactly. Most of that is financed by a woman named Yolande of Aragon, who is a really interesting character. She is the heir to the uh, like Barcelona, basically, in the Spanish yeah. kingdom, as well as parts of Italy, as well as parts of Sicily. She's got her hand kind of in everything. So the Armagnacs don't feel like they can levy taxes on anybody in southern France because if they start levying taxes for soldiers then those towns might go over to John of Burgundy because he said he wouldn't tax them at all. So pretty much all of Charles's, uh, who's the Dauphin, all of his funding comes from this woman, Yolande of Aragon, because she's extremely wealthy because she's, mon- she's part of the monarchy of like four or five, sometimes even seven kingdoms, right? So she's got deep pockets, and she is his stepmom. Oh. The guy that he's, be- or the woman that he's betrothed to is her daughter. So she's able to basically take take Charles away from Paris and his parents and um, become his sort of mentor and guide and financier for the wars to come. At this point, Charles is only like 15 or 16. He's very young. He's the third dolphin? Yeah, he's the third dolphin that we've talked about. Yeah. But for the rest of this, he's he's the only dolphin. He's yeah. the only guy that we're going to refer to as the dolphin. Because yeah, the other two died. His older brothers, they're dead. So he is the paternal heir to the French crown at this point. Uh, and his name is Charles the Seventh, And his dad is Charles the Sixth. 
His dad is Charles VI, and he's the Mad King. He's still theoretically the King of France, yeah. but he's not engaging in any leadership at yeah. all. He's literally insane. He killed people. So anyway, uh, so they basically set up this separate capital, like you were saying, in in Bourges, and Yolande of Aragon is sort of moving the pieces around. Not only does she have a shit ton of money, but she's experienced in statecraft and yeah. all that stuff. So they set up this separate court and this separate capital of France. And the Civil War continues. The Armagnacs hate John the Fearless. They call him the devil's favorite lieutenant, which I think is just a great, <laughs> great title for him. And they're at war, and it kind of goes back and forth for several years. And neither one of them can kind of get the upper hand. And there's sort of this soft truce that the Burgundians have with the English, but they're basically just letting the English take whatever they want, short of Paris. So going back to when the English first came over at that one big battle, was that the start of the Hundred Years' War? No. No. So that was just kind of like... It was already... It had been kind of fizzling and then like the sprint mm -hmm. to back up. Yeah, exactly. The Hundred Years' War, there's many different invasions of France over the course Mm -hmm. of the Hundred Years' War. You know, we'll even see in this, like King Henry goes home for a little while and the French kind of take everything back and then he just shows back up and takes it all back again. So that happened a lot during the Hundred Years' War. Like different kings would leave and another king would come back and just like things changed hands uh, a lot. Anyway, so the Civil War is going on. Both sides are kind of getting worn down. And finally, the Charles, the Dauphin, approaches John the Fearless for a treaty. And they decide to meet at this town uh, called Montereau. And they, both of them are very dubious about actually meeting right so they have to they decide that the only way they're going to be able to make it work one side's going to camp on one side of this bridge the other side's camped on the other side and then each monarch or each lord will bring just 10 men out onto this bridge and they'll have their meeting they go to have this meeting the representative for uh charles or charles who's like 18 at this time Mm -hmm. right and john the fearless who's like 48 they meet on this bridge with their 10 guys but before they can even start to discuss the terms of the treaty, mm-hmm. one of the Armagnacs just like buries an axe right in John the Fearless's head. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> and and uh, so he just bam kills him like one hit. He falls on the ground. He's bleeding. Yeah. And before the the Burgundians can even react, all of these Armagnacs just come out of these like hidden side buildings oh, so on the planned. bridge. It was meticulously planned. Yeah. And they fucking killed him. John the Fearless <laughs> yeah. is just assassinated right there on the bridge. So that the whole point of meeting on the bridge was so that wouldn't happen. Yep. And then it happened. And then it happened. Yeah. Charles or maybe Yolande set up this very, very meticulous ambush and yeah. trap for him. Like the guys that were hiding there were probably hiding there for like days in advance oh, yeah. because I'm sure they like vetted the area or whatever, but yeah. they had like built out this secret like side <laughs> thing, yeah. side tower for them to hide in and then they popped out and yeah. killed all the fucking Burgundians that were there. Well, John the Fearless, maybe he should have been afraid of one thing. <sighs> yeah, getting Jeez. an axe in his fucking brain. <laughs> <laughs> That's one logical thing to if be If you're going to be afraid of one thing, dear listeners, <laughs> be it murder by axe. Yeah, I actually read a fortune cookie the other day that said, don't get hit in the head with an axe. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, be, be afraid of axes. <laughs> anyway, so this guy, this veteran of like many wars, and this this person who had kind of propagated this war in France for like 30 years, like his whole freaking life, yeah. basically. He was one of the instigators of civil war in France because he, was, yeah, he so. was trying to set up his own sovereignty, basically, yeah. like with Burgundy. And he's just, he's tricked. 
and killed yep. when he least expects it by so, this 18-year-old Charles the nice. Charles the seventh. So that'll ease a lot of the friction within the French uh, place, right? Yeah, you would think. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> but what actually happens is that John the Fearless's son, who's called like uh, Philip the Good, hmm. a little different. He's understandably upset about the assassination of his father. And he immediately, him and the other Burgundian captains, immediately sign a treaty with Henry. And say, like, okay, fuck the Armagnacs. We're on the side of the English now. Fuck you guys. Right? (laughs) Nice. They still have Paris. So they still have the capital. And after that, they're able to, King Henry V comes to the capital, to Paris. Because now they're all on the same side. (laughs) They sign a treaty. With the English, they say, you know what? You're with us now. So King Henry comes to the capital in Paris and marries the daughter of the current king of France. Oh, he was the king of England and he was single? Yeah. Nice. I mean, I'm sh- whatever. He had some other stuff going on. But he decided- <laughs> I'm sure he had some other stuff going on. <laughs> yeah. So he marries Princess Catherine, who is the daughter of the Mad King, yeah. right? And the Mad King- I mean, who knows if he actually does it, but he signs the thing formally recognizing King Henry V of England as the heir to the throne of France. Oh, goddamn. Yeah. He stole it from the dolphin. He stole it from the dolphin. That's the dolphin's job. Yeah. The dolphin is upset about this. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So King Henry V is now officially King of England and heir to the throne of France. Hmm. Right? Got his hands in two pots. Yes. Which is an expression that people use. It is what they say. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. Charles the Seventh, the Dolphin, is very upset about this. <laughs> it's like, hey, that's my country. His line, he he's very upset. Like his claim is by blood, right? His yeah. he is the 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 rightful heir to the French throne in his eyes. That their line, their blood lineage goes all the way back to Charlemagne and Clovis, back to the year like five hundred and forty two, yeah. when the first French people that called themselves Fran- French came from the city of Troy to France and made France. So he's like they has a direct the, blood lineage all the way back like yeah, over guy, a thousand years. The guy named Frank that they named France after. Yes, to Frank. Frank himself. Yeah. <laughs> Frankie Boots or whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah, so he he is upset. So he so the Burgundians are fully in the camp of the English. It's now the Burgundian English Alliance. They're really upset at Dolphin Charles because he just murdered their big pappy John the Fearless, right? <laughs> And so the war, like, which has sort of fizzled out, just, like, bursts back mm. into crazy flames. But now the fucking Armagnacs and the Dolphin are at war with King Henry V, God's own soldier, mm. right? King of England and probably now France. <laughs> Soon to be France. Yeah. King Henry is a badass. Like, he is almost undefeatable in the field. Like, yeah. he just immediately starts wrecking shop in the Armagnacs, and they immediately start losing territory. At this point in time, Henry had, like, this little bit of northern France, Normandy, yeah. and then the Burgundians had, like, the east, and the Armagnacs had everything else, including Paris. Henry pushes them all the way down to the Loire Valley, which is this river that basically cuts across France horizontally, mm-hmm. kind of cuts it, divides it between north and central and south. Yeah. So he pushes. He immediately pushes the Armagnacs, Armagnacs back like hundreds of miles, and just victory after victory. Like Henry V is unstoppable. Yeah. When he marries the, <laughs> so he marries uh, Catherine, right, and cements his claim to the French throne. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, let's throw you uh, a big feast. Let's have some jousting. Let's do all that stuff. And he says, you know where we can do our jousting? 
in the fucking field against the <laughs> Armagnacs. Let's go. Like, the next day, he's back in the saddle. Like, let's go to war. Yeah. Fuck this shit. He is not to be flexed with. So, the Armagnacs are losing ground very quick. They fight at Somme, and they lose. They try to make a stand at Montereau, where Charles assassinated John the Fearless, that same town. Mm-hmm. But they're pushed out of there. They're besieged at the town of Melon for a while. Then that city is taken, and they're basically, they're essentially pushed all the way back to the Loire Valley, which is a, a river. Oh, the, you, you described it earlier, I think. Yeah, yeah. I did. The Loire, Loire, River, Loire River and Valley uh, sort of separates northern France from the rest of France, from central and southern France. Yeah. And the Armagnacs are pushed back eff- effectively all the way to that river. Uh, at this point, Henry V has to return to England to deal with some other shit because, mm-hmm. you know, he also has another kingdom to and run over probably there. Probably another wife there. Probably. No, he doesn't. <laughs> another, another queen. No, he's just got the one queen now. Yeah. But so Henry and his wife, Catherine, return to England in one of the winters. Is this Catherine the Great? No. Okay. She's Russia. So this is just Catherine the So-So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. And her brother is the dolphin. Who's the son of the Mad King. So Henry returns to England so he can deal with some internal issues over there and raise more soldiers, you know, fresh new yeah. army. Because that's yeah. one thing about Henry he's serving, you know, going through all these battles in France. There aren't any Englishmen in France for him to, you know, <laughs> reinforce his armies with yeah. after he takes any losses. So he has to go back to England, get more money, get more armies, and then come back periodically to, yeah. be, to continue this campaign. It's slow work wars at this time period. There's a lot of walking in the mud. Yeah. So it just, you know, it took some time and you just leave for a while and come (laughs) back to it. Hopefully the England operates pretty well on autopilot. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure he has other people. I don't even know. We'll get into, it'd be kind of interesting to do a whole thing on Henry V just because, like, just this little peek at him. He's pretty awesome. He's pretty badass. Yeah. But I'm sure there's some other interesting stuff going on. I mean, Shakespeare's play Henry V is like super famous and oh, it's yeah. all about this guy. Yeah. So when Henry leaves, Charles the Dolphin takes the opportunity to try and raise some fresh forces of his own and he sends a letter to the to the Scots in Scotland who are mortal enemies of the English. So they're like they jump on the chance to join the Armagnac <laughs> cause. <laughs> yeah. And start fighting the English, but not on their own territory, because that's great. Yeah. <laughs> you get to ruin somebody else's countryside with <laughs> yeah. war. So John Stuart, who is the leader of the Scotsmen, sends four to 6,000 troops to wage war against the English in France. And the English immediately start taking losses, because Henry's not there, basically. Yeah. At this point, the, uh, the English in France are being led by the Duke of Clarence, who's King Henry's brother. And he's just not quite the man that Henry V is. And their army is somewhat diminished. That's part of why Henry left. Yeah. But he was he's like, just, go, yeah. hold on to things here. I'll be back. Then the Scotsmen show up. They're actually, they send a veteran army. So they send an army that's been fighting the English for decades, basically. Yeah. And they use longbowmen the same way that the English use longbowmen. So they're a more formidable force. The French look at them and then just see a bunch of drunken, uh, mutton-eating bastards. <laughs> and they actually talk a whole lot of shit about them until this battle happens at Bourges. Because the English army, the Scots come down, and the English army, under the leadership of the Duke of Clarence, like, this is Henry's brother, right? He's like, okay, I want to win my own glory in battle. Yeah. So he takes a huge chunk of the English army in France, and he sends them to attack this town called Bourges. 
which is where the Scots have come and reinforced the Armagnac army. So the French are talking a lot of shit about the Scots until this battle because the Scots fucking demolish the English yeah. in this fight. And the French are like, oh, maybe and then, being drunk with a belly full of mutton isn't such a bad thing. Not a bad tactic. No. <laughs> maybe it's effective. Yeah. After this battle, Charles himself, Charles the Dolphin, heads north to meet with these drunken mutton-eating boars at the town of Tours, uh, where they're hanging out after this victory. And he actually names uh, John Stuart, the Duke of Buchan, as Constable of the Kingdom of France, which is the second highest uh, military role in France at this time period. Mm. So he's he names this Scotsman the second-in-command of France under himself because of this victory. Basically, in, in these Scotsmen, in the Duke of Buchan, John Stuart, Charles sees like his chance to get the English out of France and to win this war once and for all. So he rolls up there, joins his forces with the Scottish forces, and they immediately start pushing north into Normandy, into the previously occupied areas in the English, and they're winning victory after victory, and they're taking town after town, and they're like, we're on a fucking roll. They got a lot of mutton, they got a lot of fucking scotch, and they're just <laughs> kicking butt, dude. Nice. And so then they turn east toward Paris, and they are marching toward Paris and, again, winning victory after victory. There's wrecking shop. And Charles himself is with the army, and he's like, this is fantastic. We're going to take back my country. Henry V, king of England, says, you know what? I'm going back to France. <laughs> and he, get, he arrives on the northern coast of Normandy in June of 1421 and is in Paris by the 4th of July, 1421. Mm -hmm. At this point, the French and Scottish army is camped just like 20, 30 miles away in the town of Chartres. And then they get word that Henry's back, and they're like, oh, fuck. Oh, and basically, fuck. Charles pisses his pants, <laughs> Charles the <laughs> Dolphin, and they don't, even, they don't even try to attack Paris once Henry comes back. Oh, what the fuck? Yeah, and they just immediately start to retreat. Without even having to face, <laughs> without even facing Henry in battle, they just start retreating. So Charles pulls his army back to the Loire Valley, where they have retaken the Loire Valley. So they're still in a, a, a better position of strength. But everything that they just took in Normandy, they just give up because yeah. they know they can't hold it against Henry and his new. He also brought a new army back with him, yeah. another like four or five thousand people. And Charles himself, who had been riding like with the army, uh, actually retreats all the way south to Bourges, like his uh, new capital. So the army is trying to hold the Loire Valley. Charles himself is no longer with the army, but the Scots are all there. And the big news that Henry comes back with, King Henry, is that his wife is pregnant. Oh, shit. Is she still in England? No, she comes... Uh, I think she is still in England, actually. So she I, went with him in the... Yeah, she yeah. went with him, and I think she stays in England. So Henry comes back to France with the news that he's going to have a son who will embody that alliance and have the bloodline of the French king mm -hmm. and the bloodline of the English king and really be the heir to the double crown of England and France. It's going to be a very powerful baby. <laughs> exactly. Almost like Harry Potter. It's going to be an extremely powerful baby. <laughs> the baby. <laughs> with the power of uniting England and France. Yeah. The baby that could end the war of all wars. <laughs> the baby with the foreskin of Christ. <laughs> That's a joke, but it's real. So Henry V, he knows that in a particular cathedral in France, they have stored the foreskin of Christ. Oh, they do? Yes. And the foreskin of Christ is said to protect pregnant women during pregnancy. All right. So he retrieves the foreskin of Christ. I mean, it's 1,420 years old. It's probably in pretty rough shape. Apparently it's preserved. And he sends the foreskin <laughs> of Christ back to England for his wife to keep 
and to protect her while she's pregnant. Anyway, I thought that was So where is it now? What's the status of Jesus' foreskin these days? Currently, I don't know. We'll mm. have to do a little deep dive into yeah. that later. <laughs> a little bonus episode. Yeah. <laughs> where is it? Where is it now? Because I mean, did she give it back? She must I have. I don't know, man. But Charles the Dolphin sees sees this little baby as a, a this soon-to-be baby. He's not born yet. Uh, as a threat, right? And he realizes he's going to have to get married and have his own kid to cement his lineage, his yeah. claim on the throne, right? So Henry V's son is born on the 6th of December, 1421. The foreskin does its work. The baby is born. The queen is still alive. And uh, Charles the Dolphin marries the woman that he's been betrothed to, Marie, in April of 1422 to set up his own lineage and his own thing. And she's, again, the daughter of Yolande of Aragon, so she's the heir also of Sicily and oh, some yeah. stuff in Spain. So there's some crazy mixed bloodlines of monarchies going on right yeah, now. Yeah, A lot of ins, a lot of outs, a lot of what have you. Yeah. So anyway, after sending that foreskin back home, uh, Henry goes back to war, and he's just smashing Armagnac armies left and right. And he's taking, like, the Armagnacs at this point, who call themselves the French, have all of these cities and towns along the Loire River. That's the one that's uh, yeah, special one. Yeah. It kind of divides northern France yeah, from yeah. the rest of France. And Henry just systematically is starting to take them one after the other after the yeah. other. They are fighting back. The Armagnacs are fighting back. And they have the Scottish on their side. So they're doing better than they were before. So there's a little bit of back and forth, a little bit of pushback. One of the towns that Henry has taken from the Armagnacs is now under siege by the Armagnacs. And Henry's back in Paris, so he's like, okay, fuck, I gotta go relieve this siege. On his way there, he gets terribly sick. Oh, he should have hung on to that foreskin. I know. And then he dies. He dies? Yeah. Didn't he meet his baby? No. On the 30... Well, I don't think he did. On the 31st of August, 1422, he might have gone back and met him, like, during that summer. Maybe, yeah. But anyway, he dies on the 31st of August, 1422, and no one can believe it. He was only 35 years old. He was seemingly in the prime of his life. Yeah. He was this person holding this whole, like, campaign for this, like, double uh, monarchy together. And so it, it him dying was, like, a not only a huge shock to everybody involved, but it also put a lot of people in positions of power that did not expect to be in positions of oh, power. Yeah, yeah. And it gave them the responsibility of, like, okay, now we're supposed to, like, claim France. He was He was one of those people, like, have you ever heard the great man theory versus like the other theory. No. The great man theory is this uh, historical theory that certain events in history just would not have happened if it weren't for this particular person, you know, as opposed to the other theory, I forget what it's called, which is that like somebody would have stepped into that role and it didn't have to be that person to do it. Yeah. Right place, right time kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. But this, in this situation, it really does lend itself to it seeming like if it wasn't Henry, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Like he was just a bad MFer, and he, without his like kind of, without his huge personality and his like dedication to the cause and his ability to lead men into battle and win, no one was as confident about this whole double monarchy thing yeah. as he had been. So it was a huge blow. The person who takes charge of the French campaign is a guy named John of Bedford. So John of Bedford, who he's, he's an English guy, takes charge of basically the campaign to take over France um, in France. And then Duke Philip of Burgundy, who's the um, Philip the Good, the son of John the Fearless. Mm-hmm. So those two of them and their alliance is basically going to form now, in the place of Henry, the opposition to the Armagnacs, mm-hmm. right? So those two guys are kind of dually in charge of the 
uh, Anglo-Burgundian alliance and its war against the Armagnacs. But they're not as effective. So the war kind of kind of slows down. There aren't as many decisive victories. It becomes more of a war of attrition. The Armagnacs are still slowly losing control. And Charles, he's got he's kind of feeling like defeatist, right? He like they've lost now everything along the Loire Valley except for Orléans. And Orléans is like it's a it's a big bigger city on the Loire Valley and it has a big bridge across it. So it's kind of the gateway from northern France to southern France. Yeah. So it's a critical point. So it's their last point that they're holding on that river. As the war grinds on, the Burgundians and the English alliance manage to make it to Orléans and lay siege to Orléans. Yeah. Charles's forces there he's further south in Bourges, but he, the forces in Orléans do try to push back and push the Anglo-Burgundian alliance out, but they fail time and again. So they're under siege. And basically the war is looking really bleak because if they can take, if the Anglo-Burgundians can take Orléans, then the rest of France is kind of laid open to them. So it's kind of their last defense. Yeah. And Charles doesn't have the strength at this point or the, the forces to free Orléans. So he's like not sure what to do. And it's at this point, it's at this point. At this point? Yeah. What's this point? At that this a bridge. young woman shows up. Joan of Arc oh, rolls shit. into the scene, and shit's about to get real rock and roll, my friend. Oh, shit. <laughs> so get ready, because blood is about to be shed. Oh. Words are about to be spoken, and letters, strongly worded letters, are about <laughs> to be written. But uh, Beautiful Animals, we will pick up here next week with the coming of Joan of Arc into the complicated French political scene. Quite complicated indeed. Yes. I must say. <laughs> as an observer <laughs> I'm uh, sure you understood every oh, yeah. second of it but yeah, I yeah. feel like it's very important to understand Charles the Seventh has been through a lot Charles the Dolphin at yeah. this point a lot of back and forth a lot of wars Henry's gone but he's still losing and he's kind of despairing at this point yeah and so it's into that that this woman this really this girl walks into she's 16 at the time and we'll go all over her history and everything going on next week but He's at a very desperate position when this young woman shows up and tells yeah. him what she's going to tell him, which sounds fucking crazy. But again, desperate times, right? Yeah. We're, we're familiar with her name, so she must have done a good job. She does something. She, does, she must influence course of history she in some way. She plays a small role <laughs> in the course of history. We will see. And in the Hundred Years War. So tune in next week. We're going to discuss everything discussable about Joan of Arc. We're going to talk about... <laughs> everything discussable. Yes. We're going to talk about her early life. We're going to talk about her visions. And we're going to talk about the role she played in the ongoing conflict between the Armagnacs and the Anglo-Burgundians. And man, it gets juicy and it gets weird. Nice. So I thank you guys for uh, sticking with us for the historical context and get ready for the weird shit next week. We like the juicy and we like the weird. That's what we do this podcast for. Yeah, juicy and weird. Speaking of juicy and weird. Yeah, tell me. Do you want to open a fortune cookie? Oh, it's only if it's fucked up. <laughs> Expect rain around 5 p.m. Oh. It's not a fortune cookie. That's a the weather app. More reliable, though. Yeah. <laughs> Are you ready for this fortune cookie? Yes, sir. Soon you will be included in many meetings, parties, and gatherings. <laughs> Fucking a weird fortune. <laughs> Soon your friends will like you again. <laughs> Remember those guys? Remember Man. when you used to have friends? Wasn't that nice? Wouldn't you like to do it It'll again? It'll happen again, I swear. I swear. 
Your, fam- uh, your family's going to call you and well, she'll want to hang out. I hope so. <laughs> Let's go bowling. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, beautiful animals, thank you guys so much for listening and for tuning in once again. We, um, you know, it was a bit of a hiatus, but we're getting back in the saddle. We're going to be mm-hmm. rolling again with weekly podcasts yeah. here for a while. Our whole thing here is that we don't want to put it out unless it's good and thorough. So and thorough, uh, yeah, we gotta yeah, we don't want to put a bunch of bullshit out there, which is all we do. Yeah, we don't want our bullshit to be too too much filler yeah, bullshit. We want it to be like <laughs> delicious, good bullshit, yeah, tasty bullshit. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, thank you guys so much. Uh, sending us feedback via the email beautifulanimalspodcast@gmail.com is greatly appreciated. Yeah, and there's the Instagram there is beautiful.animals.pod. Yeah. And as always, there's a jug in your kitchen that is empty and needs to be filled with water so that you can chug all the water out of it yes. so you can stay your ass hydrated. That's right. Don't forget to juice it. Whatever fruit, whatever melons are around you, just juice them, juice. drink it, hydrate that way as well. So mm-hmm. those are the rules. Those are the rules, and we didn't make the rules, okay? No, we don't make the rules, we just discuss them. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for listening to another episode, and we will see you next week. Excellent.